This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. James Marsden has had a long career in Hollywood, playing the romantic interest in many comedies and dramas, but doesn't always end up with the girl. Recently, he's taken on some other kinds of roles. In the HBO series Westworld, he was Teddy, one of the android cowboys in the Western-themed adventure park that goes wrong. And he did double duty in the Netflix show Dead to Me, playing semi-identical brothers. In his new series, Jury Duty, he has a completely different sort of role, a satirical version of himself. Marsden spoke with our producer, Sam Brigger. The new show Jury Duty, available on Amazon Freebie, has its roots in the old TV show Candid Camera, where surprising and funny things happen to unwitting bystanders and hidden cameras captured their reactions. In Jury Duty, a regular guy named Ronald Gladden has agreed to participate in a documentary about the experience of being a juror. He goes to the L.A. courtroom, is picked as the jury foreperson, and follows along the court proceedings. There's a small film crew following him and the other jurors around. What Ronald doesn't know is that the whole thing is fake. The entire courthouse has been fitted with hidden cameras, and everyone there except him is an actor. The other jurors, the judge, the lawyers, the plaintiff, the bailiff, everybody. And a lot of them are acting really weird and doing funny things. It's all highly improvised. The camera captures Ronald trying to navigate these strange people and circumstances, and he does so amazingly well, with kindness and grace even when he finds out he's going to be sequestered for two weeks with his fellow jurors at a hotel. Jury duty might have been a cruel show, but it's not. Ronald is not the butt of an elaborate joke. He's actually the hero of the show. The only person he recognizes among the other jurors is the actor James Marsden, who's also been summoned for jury duty. This James Marsden is a self-absorbed and egotistical, satirical version of the Hollywood star played by James Marsden, our guest today. Marsden has been in a lot of movies and TV shows over his career, including Enchanted, 27 Dresses, four X-Men movies, two Sonic the Hedgehog movies, The Notebook, and 30 Rock. But before we get to that, let's hear a clip from the new show Jury Duty. Here the potential jurors are sitting in the court waiting room, and Ronald realizes that the man sitting next to him is James Marsden. Dude, that's right. Now you're from your X-Men. Oh. Have <laughs> <laughs> This entire time. I didn't ask your name, forgive me. Ronald. Ronald. Yeah, James. Pleasure. Nice to meet you. Yeah, I was trying to pinpoint it because I was like, I've seen you somewhere. <laughs> yeah, but I've been in like so much stuff. It's like X Men and Hairspray and Enchanted and Westworld and stuff like that, but Notebook. And... Oh, shit, you're in Westworld? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know him from the Notebook. He's in the Notebook? <laughs> no, uh, what is he in the Notebook? The other guy. He's the other guy? The guy she really should have got together with. Oh my God, I haven't seen that movie in so long. I didn't even, I didn't realize. I was looking at his socks over here. It looked like it said Sonic. And I'm in that movie Sonic. I was like, does he have Sonic socks so on? Shit, you're in the movie Sonic? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's the one with the new one with Jim Carrey. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that was not a good movie. <laughs> That's a scene from Jury Duty with Ronald Gladden and my guest, James Marsden. James Marsden, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, Sam. Happy to be here. 
It's great to have you here. Uh, so I just want to ask you first, when you heard about what the show was going to be about, did you have any reservations about doing it? Um, I only had reservations. <laughs> uh, yes, I did, of course. It was uh, a very ambitious conceit. Um, I was approached by my friend David Bernad, who is a producer of The White Lotus. We've done a couple of projects together before. And um, he asked if uh, I'd be interested in getting on a Zoom with Lee Eisenberg and Gene Stipnitsky at The Office, who I was a, a huge fan of that show. Um, and he gave me sort of a... a a basic one-liner idea of the concept of the show, which is basically we're taking uh, the Truman Show and we're dropping it in the middle of uh, jury duty. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, well, let's expound on that. Let's <laughs> What's my part? What am I doing? And I got excited about um, all of the sort of improvisational element of the show and the sort of live theater uh, part of the whole thing. Uh, so I, yeah, I'm a big Christopher Guest fan. I loved the Larry Sanders show. I love obviously Curb Your Enthusiasm and everything Larry David does. So it was, I was always looking for an opportunity to get in a room and play with, uh, improvisational actors. So that was you exciting. Haven't, you me. haven't done that much of that, right? In the past? No, I haven't. I mean, you know, yeah, no, not, um, not, uh, not tr true improvisational shows that are, uh, that's woven into the DNA of the show by nature. No, mm -hmm. I, I'm on Dead to Me, Liz Feldman allows us to play occasionally, but the scripts are, you know, it's all written and it's very tight. And usually we don't need to improv. But, um, but something like this was so unique, so different and original. And I was enthusiastic about b being a part of something like this, but also apprehensive because I didn't know <laughs> if it was going to work. Um, yeah. and, uh, yeah, I had many reservations and the biggest one was the wild card of this one human being who's being dropped into this situation that is all fake and manufactured and what, what that's going to be like and who, what's he going to be like? And is this even something that is, you know, ethically right to do <laughs> sort right. of, you know, play with someone's human experience over the course of three weeks of their life? Um, but I made it clear that it was important to me that I didn't want to be a part of a prank show. You know, right. I was not that I was not interested in being cruel or mean spirited at all. And um, and they said, no, we're not interested in doing that either. What we're doing is we're creating a hero's journey for somebody. And what we're surrounding him with are these this cast of bizarre, eccentric weirdos um, and hopefully carving out a path for him to become the leader at the end and have his 12 angry men moment where he um, inspires us all and unites us. And, um, and then we pull the curtain back and, and celebrate him as a human being. And hopefully show him what he, was it all about. Yeah. Uh, show him what it was all about. And hopefully he takes that in, in stride and no, but you know, who knows how he's going to react. Um, so the, the, the sort of unknown was appealing to me, but it was also terrifying. Um, so when you were thinking about making this satirical version of yourself, did you think about things about yourself that you don't really like very much and amplify them? Or did you come up with like a completely different character? Like what did you base that person on? Uh, you know, to me, it was just the idea of lampooning the cliche, you know, entitled, self-absorbed, egocentric Hollywood actor was really exciting to me. I could, and I could, you know, I, I could do it as myself, and hopefully by the end of it, everyone would know that I'm satirizing that character, and, right. and it's not really me. <laughs> 
you know, I do this kind of bit on set sometimes when we're sitting around waiting for the cameras to be set up. I'm not talking about jury duty. I'm talking about every other movie or TV show I've ever a part of. And uh-huh. I just think it's it's a funny little bit to like pretend like you're the actor who is trying to be affable and like self-deprecating, but really what comes through is the the, <laughs> the narcissism <laughs> and the and the, the uh, conceited nature of, you know, it's that whole thing of like I, you know, I would do a a little bit on set of be like, yeah, I don't think people really truly understand how difficult it is to be an actor. I know there are really tough and dangerous vocations out there, but I don't think people really know how hard it is. I'm sorry, the coffee is a little yeah. lukewarm. These ice cubes are too cold. Right. <laughs> right. And so, I don't know. I just thought the idea of sending up that that sort of trope and and playing with it and I'm I'm doing it in my own shoes, um, was an exciting funny thing for me to explore, and, uh, <laughs> and there's something about playing someone who thinks that the world worships them when they actually don't <laughs> at all, <laughs> and watching that person. You know, get humiliated, fall on their face, get embarrassed by the lack of enthusiasm in the room. And I mean, this James Marsden is always trying to get the conversation steered back to him because right. that's <laughs> that's the only conversation he knows and it's the only conversation he's interested in. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the hero of the show, the real person, Ronald Gladden. Like, so much relied on this guy. Like, either it could have been a terrible experience for him or like... I, I mean, he could have turned out to be a horrible person. Mm-hmm. It was a real right. tightrope walk, I think, to probably choosing the No, right it was. Person. And, um, I mean, there were a number of things that that could have happened that would have torpedoed this whole endeavor. Um, and we got really, really lucky with him, mostly with him, because he just is one of the kindest, empathetic, you know, uh, wonderful human beings uh, that, I, that I've <laughs> I've ever met. And... He kind of took it all in stride and laughed it off and, and um, you know, all the absurdity, the, the crazy things that are happening in the courtroom. Um, so they did a, an amazing job of finding finding him. And then we got to know him on day one, right, when the camera started rolling. And I had, I had only had a few days of rehearsal because mm-hmm. I was finishing up Party Down at the time. Mm-hmm. And the other cast members had another week and a half of rehearsals because it was very strategic on very choreographed. Where do you sit? It's just uh, intricate. And um, I remember thinking, just sweating bullets, just like, I don't <laughs> think I'm ready for this. I don't know if I'm going to be funny. I, I don't want to be the one to, to blow the whole thing. Yeah. But all they told us was, his name's Ronald Gladden. He's from San Diego. He's a solar panel uh, contractor or something like that. And he's six foot six and have fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, the scripts say this, and this is what happens, but you kind of had to be like water and flow and pivot when you needed to because no one knew what he was going to say. No one would, No one knew if he would even recognize who I was. Yeah. Um, well, he no doesn't quite at first, going. right? Like, no, he doesn't, takes which is kind of comedy gold. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, um, I mean, that's a, that's a great part of that clip where he basically – you say, yeah, I was in Sonic, and he's like, oh, I heard that's a bad movie. Like, you must, <laughs> you must have wanted to crack up at that point. I did, but I knew that he just put a meatball right over a home plate for me to, <laughs> you know, it was like, this is 
amazing that he just said that. <laughs> and it gave me an opportunity to look as crestfallen as I could and, <laughs> and sort of, you know, uh, brush it off and uh, remind him that I was in other stuff right. and it was a big movie and it did, you know. <laughs> so it was perfect. I mean, it was really, there were moments where Ronald, there were scripted moments that um, he seemed to be ahead of us on hmm. that he oh, kind of led us to. Yeah. There's a moment in that opening sequence where we're in the uh, waiting room where um, Noah, there's an actor named Mecky, he's uh, one of our writers as well, brilliant improv artist, and he plays Noah. He comes in and he says, hey, how do you, uh, I need to get out of this. I'm, I'm going on a vacation with my girlfriend. <laughs> Any ideas of how you can get out of this? And it's scripted that Noah proposes the idea that it's a good idea to present to the judge that you're racist and that's why you should be let off. And before Mackie could get to that beat, Ronald proposed, hey, I saw this uh, Family Guy episode where the guy says he's racist and tries to get out of jury duty with that. <laughs> he yeah, he also says, went, like, I don't know if I necessarily recommend doing this, but... Sure, yeah. right, right. Yeah. yeah, no, no. He was uh, he was saying it sort of like laughing, like not yeah, don't you know, do that. Kind of as a joke, of <laughs> yeah. course. He never expected this young man to actually <laughs> use that tactic. Um, and you see the terror in his eyes when Noah gets up in the voir dire <laughs> yeah. and uses, you know, and, and that's the strategy that he, he goes for. <laughs> yeah. <That's it. laughs> so, but it was really amazing because, you know, as, as much as you can prepare for something like this, there's 20, maybe 30% of it that is just like, you just got to be nimble and go with the flow. And if you if we want Ronald to take a left and he wants to take a right, you got to take a right turn with him and adjust. And that was exciting and like I said before, absolutely terrifying at the same time. So how much like behind the scenes plotting and scripting was happening while you were filming the show? Like I think it was it was like 17 days or something like that overall. Mm -hmm. Like would you guys meet in the morning and in the evening to figure out like, okay, he said this thing. How are we going to use this tomorrow? Or like, James, you need to set up this thing by making this sort of statement. Like how much of that was happening? A regular day on, on jury duty was um, – the cast would arrive at the courthouse about an hour and a half, two hours before Ronald would show up. Mm -hmm. And we would go through the beats of the day. Like, okay, all right, so today's about this. This is the voir dire. This is where so-and-so will get up and Marsden will try and get out of jury duty by saying he's a distraction, da-da-da-da. And we'll kind of go over the moments and think I'm sort of like, it's like a little mini rehearsal before Ronald gets there. And um, we'd prepare ourselves for the day as much as we could and then we would leave, and we would go hide in our vans that were supposed to be taking us to to court, or early on, our own cars just around the block, and with walkie-talkies in the car. And like, okay, our hero's landed, our hero's landed, cue Marsden's car, he can now come in, and we would start the day. And once you walk into that courtroom, you know, in the courthouse, it's all one take, right? Mm, yeah. it's, like, it's one take, and your beats work, or they don't, and... At the end of the day, Ronald would get in his car or his van and leave, and we would all leave as well, and we would go hide around the corner <laughs> and wait for him to clear, and then we would come back to the courthouse and go over the day and what happened. Did anyone notice what he said? Did he say anything that was alarming or that he was suspicious? Um, that beat didn't work or this, we didn't get to this beat. We'll save it, put a pin in it, maybe see if we can come back to it tomorrow. And it was just a constant evolution as you, as you went through the process. You must have just been exhausted after every day. 
I was. Everybody was. When you're in this dusty, old, asbestos, <laughs> like, abandoned courthouse with no yeah. windows and fluorescent lights, and you're there in character for sometimes five hours a day, um, and doing two things. You're juggling, all right, how do I you know, push my beats with him? How do I pick my moments with him? How do I make sure I'm not, you know, upsetting the apple cart and making, still making this believable, still making this funny? Um, and yeah, and, 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 and throughout the day, like you don't want to be the one that screws the whole thing up. Have you been in touch with him since the show ended? Yeah, very. I was actually chatted with him this morning and last night. I mean, oh, yeah. it was important to me and it was important to the, the producers and and the cast and everyone who fell in love with this guy very early on that our north star for this whole process was he's got to know by the end of this that this was fake but not all of it was fake mm -hmm. the friendships that were created the relationships that he forged through the through the um the process of of making this show were in fact very real right like our 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 connections to him were organic and authentic and real and all of us could not sprint fast enough up to him once we, once the reveal happened and give him a big hug and let him know that I was like I can't do this and then let let him know it was all fake and go hey see you bud nice to meet you that was cool yeah <laughs> you know right. yeah, I immediately exchanged numbers I'm like I'm here let's hang out let's grab a beer let's talk about the whole thing and I just I couldn't. I couldn't just leave him, nor did I want to. I mean, I really did create a real friendship with him. Yeah. And everyone else on the cast did as well. Yeah. I I mean, another thing that, that was nice is that he gets a reward of like $100,000 at the end. So that sort of – Right. He's compensated for his time. But I remember questioning that as well, you know, because I, I was so worried that there, we were going to be doing something ethically wrong, mm -hmm. you know, that I was concerned but that the check might have been a slap in the face, right? Like you punch someone in the mouth and then like throw cash at them. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. would it feel like that? Would it feel like that? And most people are like, I think he's going to be happy to get the check, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. But, but when you guys reveal to him, like, you can see, like, everyone looks really nervous. And, like, they don't – it feels yeah. really awkward. Like, people are like, oh, no, what's going to happen? Because, yeah, you, it seemed like none of you really wanted to, to hurt him and, like, to have no. him feel, like, offended by this. But, you know, I, I really enjoyed watching the show. But I have to say, after watching the show – I've been feeling really paranoid about when I'm like out in public and something weird happens. Like I look around like, you know, am I on film? Is someone recording me? Like it's, yeah. it gave me a, a – especially like the first day afterwards, I had a really weird sensation about it. Yeah, I think that's a normal reaction. Um, I remember when I first got involved calling all my friends who are in the improv world I remember calling Ben Schwartz, and I was like, well, here's the conceit of this show, and it's really ambitious, and, and um, what am I doing? I mean, like, am I, you know, is this a good thing to do? His first words out of his mouth were, make sure they're not punking you. <laughs> right. And I remember thinking that the first week. It was like, this, is this an elaborate, am I the butt of the joke of the yeah. whole thing? Yeah. Right? Everyone was questioning their, their not to get Westworld, but their reality <laughs> <laughs> right. as, we, as we progressed through the whole thing, because it just could have been anything. And, um, yeah, I, 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 I can imagine even the viewers going home afterwards thinking, wow, what, what if that was me? How would I handle that? I mean, yeah. I know me. I can't even take a surprise birthday party. <laughs> right? So, again, it's like, who knows what, how this is going to affect him? 
And, um, yeah, I think that's a pretty uh, natural response to be questioning if people are following you around with cameras, especially nowadays when... There's cameras when everywhere. All of, like everyone's got a camera well, cameras, in their pocket. There's cameras everywhere, and there's, there's sort of a new blending, a fusion that's going on of, like, mm-hmm. scripted stuff mixed with reality. Right. You know, the audience is kind of wanting to see a little bit more of that, right? I mean, we're obsessed with these, like, court cases with Gwyneth Paltrow and right. Johnny Depp, and it's like, that's our entertainment now. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I feel like there's a we're sort of steering the ship in that direction uh, in our industry a bit, and maybe we're going to see a lot more of this sort of hidden camera stuff. We're listening to the interview our producer Sam Brigger recorded with James Marsden, who stars in the new series Jury Duty, which is streaming on Amazon Freebie. We'll hear more of the interview after a break, and John Powers will review a new film he says cuts to the very heart of what's happening in the world right now. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Amory Baldonado, and I work on Fresh Air. Are you enjoying this episode? Hope so. But one thing you won't hear is all the work that went into it behind the scenes. We have booking producers, editing producers. We pitch it. Arrange the interview. Figure out where they're going to be, when we're going to do it. We record much longer than listeners actually hear. The packet of research that she gets from the producers, it's definitely Terry synthesizing all of that the day of, which, frankly, couldn't be me. (laughs) (laughs) You can hear more about that in our recent bonus episode, where two Fresh Air producers talk about how our show is made. That's available now for Fresh Air Plus listeners. And if you're not one yet, signing up is super easy, and you'll be supporting public media. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Let's get back to the interview our producer Sam Brigger recorded with actor James Marsden. He stars in the new series Jury Duty, which is on Amazon Freebie. Jury Duty is a fake reality show that takes place in an L.A. courtroom. Everyone is an actor except for one real person, Ronald Gladden. Ronald believes he's participating in a documentary about jury duty. He doesn't know that everyone around him, the rest of the jury, the judge, the witnesses, are all actors who are improvising. They're all kind of odd, and their behavior is unpredictable. Marsden plays a satirical, self-absorbed version of himself, serving as an alternate juror. Marsden's other recent TV shows include Westworld and Dead to Me. His films include 27 Dresses, The Notebook, the 2007 version of Hairspray, and Disney's Enchanted, where he plays Edward, a satirical take on the Prince Charming type. 
I want to play a scene from the movie Enchanted. Um, this is a Disney movie that spoofs the idea of um, Disney princesses and Prince Charming, like tropes. And uh, you play Prince Edward. You and Giselle, who is played by Amy Adams, actually like live in an animated world, a very Disney world. And uh, the minute you meet, you sing a duet together and fall immediately in love and you're planning to get married. However, your stepmother doesn't want you to marry uh, Giselle, so she pushes her down a magic well, and she lands up in the non-animated, gritty world of New York City. I mean, gritty in a Disney sort of way. But um, but so she meets Patrick Dempsey and starts having feelings for him, and she starts to like learn to appreciate her new world. You've also jumped into the well to try to go find her, and here you finally have, um, and this is it. Patrick Dempsey's apartment. He has a daughter, and this is when you see her for the first time. <gasps> Giselle! Edward! Uh... <laughs> could you... I'm sorry, but could you just be... Could you, could you just be careful? You. You're the one who's been holding my Giselle captive. Just uh, stay calm. No! Have you any last words before I dispatch you? You have got to be kidding me. Strange words. No! 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 These are my friends. Oh. This is Morgan. And Robert, this is Edward. I've been dreaming of a true love's kiss. He sings too. And a miss I have begun to miss. Pure and sweet waiting to complete. My love song Yes, somewhere there's a maid I've never met Who was made Who was made To finish What's wrong? You're not singing Oh I'm not Well, I'm sorry I was thinking. Thinking? Before we leave, there's one thing I would love to do. Oh, well, name it, my love, and it is done. I want to go on a date. A date? What's a date? <laughs> That's my guest, James Marsden, in the movie. In it's so interesting just listening to the audio. <laughs> yeah, it's great audio. Um, so you're doing like a sort of... A, Prince Charming voice there. Like, how? what are you doing? <laughs> uh, I mean, we went back and looked at all the old Snow Whites and, and uh, the, you know, the classic Disney uh, princes and Sleeping Beauty. And, and they all had this sort of voice, you know, that was like... Uh, <laughs> They, like they loved the sound of their own voice, yeah. and it's they like, loved I'm the an idea. actor. Or something. Yes, I, yes, it was very you know back in the day in the forties or whatever they were just taught to do you know, speech. They had speech lessons and whatever. And um, with the singing, I mean, I know that was an acapella bit, but when we actually recorded that song, I had uh, vocal lessons from a coach who was um, taught operetta style mm, singing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was sort of Mario Lanza, uh, <laughs> you know. It wasn't. Um, because back in the the older Disney movies, that's the kind of singing it was. It was operetta. It wasn't uh, it wasn't your modern Disney style uh, kind of more pop singing. So it was um, it was a style of music or style of singing that I wasn't that familiar with and and uh, had to uh, <laughs> get up to speed. But yes, it was. Um, you know, I thought Edward was someone who always every every. Uh, 
every statement is as simple or complex as it would be. Not that he was ever saying anything much complex, I mean, too complex, <laughs> but uh, it had to be a proclamation, right? Everything. I'll have a bagel, <laughs> you know, and it had to have an exclamation point at the end. Of it. Um, and I just think there was such a f- fun to be had to just be this unabashed. Um, romantic, romantic uh, prince who just is in in love with being in love. Mm-hmm. He's in love with the idea of Giselle, and he's love and is in love with his his the sound of his own voice, and and just goes through moves through life with just um, you know uh, an optimism that's unmatched. <laughs> like nothing can you know you can't imagine him ever getting cynical about anything. Um, and wow, what a, you know, ignorance is bliss kind of way to live. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun to play because obviously I'm wearing the big giant puffy sleeves and <laughs> yeah, swinging the right. sword and, and the hair is flopping around <laughs> and, you know, it just, uh, it was a blast. It really was so much fun. You know, you've had quite a few roles where you play like the passed over romantic interest. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's this movie, um, and the notebook in particular, but you, you could even say like your character, Teddy in Westworld, there's a little bit of that. Like, why did you think sure. that you've had those roles? Were you typecast, do you think? I don't know. I mean, there for a while, it became, it started getting more traction than I ever had intended, right? I mean, there were roles um, in between all of those big projects where I wasn't playing the, you know, right. the guy sure. who doesn't, doesn't get the girl or the right. simp or whatever, you know. But it just so happens to be the ones that <laughs> became big successes <laughs> uh, were those ones with the roles where, I, you know, whatever the movies I was playing, you know, the guy who ends up kind of getting cuckolded or whatever you want to call it. And um, it started to look pathological. Like I was choosing these on purpose. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 no. This is not by design. It just sort of happened that way. So, um, we didn't know Enchanted was going to be just a massive hit. The notebook became like, you know, this still to this day is incredible how yeah. the legs that that movie has. And yeah. I will say though, nowadays, what I'm getting a lot more of now is she should have ended up with him. <laughs> so a lot of people nowadays, like especially a lot of Gen Zers are like, that was a toxic relationship <laughs> between Noah and Allie. She should have been with James. Right. <laughs> you, you know, you do some nice singing in that scene. Like it's obviously, it's not like probably the style of singing that you like to do. But um, and it's when I was watching a lot of your roles, like you actually sing in quite a lot of um, different roles that you've been in. Like in, there's this whole season of Allie McBeal where you sing all these tunes. Like, d- like first of all, like, did you sing a lot as a kid? And um, and like how – I guess you were known in Hollywood as someone who could carry a tune, huh? Yeah, I think because I've been afforded opportunities to, to show that I can. Mm-hmm. I mean, with Enchanted and like even Hairspray. Right, um, Hairspray too. I yeah. was Right, I was singing as a character, so it wasn't really my voice, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but Ally McBeal was the, probably the closest thing to what I normally sound like, right? Mm-hmm. It's more like Harry Connick – um, kind of Sinatra, they, both of both of whom I grew up emulating. Yeah, I want to play a little bit of you singing um, from Ally McBeal, where it sounds like you spent quite a lot of time listening to Frank Sinatra saying "The Lady Is a Tramp," because um, you're you know you're following like his staccato phrasing. Um, mm-hmm. So I was wondering if he was a hero of yours as a singer. And but before you answer that, let's just hear a little bit of you singing "The Lady Is a Tramp." She gets hungry 
for dinner at eight. She loves the theater, doesn't come late. She'd never bother with anyone she'd hate. That's why the lady is a tramp. Doesn't like dice games with barons in her. So that's just a little bit of so high. <laughs> yeah, it is high though. I sound like such a kid. I sound <laughs> well, even when you're like speaking, a, yeah, when you speak in that show, man, you have a higher <laughs> voice boy, for sure. I in my vibrato is so just like rapid fire. Um, yeah, I uh, I I grew up loving. My mother used to listen to the old standards, and and I remember just really gravitating towards um, the old great American songbook. It was mm-hmm. Gershwin and Rodgers and Hart and Sammy Kahn and all these greats. And I loved orchestration. It was just big, you know, slamming big bands, and it just I just loved it. One of the reasons I got into Hollywood and I wanted to be an actor is because I always felt like I had a pretty good ear. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I started doing like plays and musicals in high school, and um, it was the first time in my life I felt like I might be good at something, mm. and whether I was right or wrong. <laughs> It felt like the audience's reaction was positive, and I had so much fun performing. And I would, I was kind of a parrot. I mm-hmm. would, I would go to school and do. I would totally plagiarize, or I wouldn't plagiarize, but I would, I would do, you know, Dana Carvey sketches and from SNL. I would, I had all of Eddie Murphy's stand-up and like memorized, and and I would go to school and get and do these characters and do impersonations and impressions and get laughs. And it was like a great source of validation for me at the time. Mm. Um, and, um, and that kind of went into music as well. Like I would, I would sing along with Harry Connick or sing along with Sinatra and I would kind of try to make myself sound like them. And, um, so it's one of the reasons why I still have a hard time to this day, someone saying you're a proper singer, like you're, you know, trained. Mm. And I feel like, I don't know if I'm a singer or, or if I'm just an impersonator, (laughs) you know, but, uh, yeah, it's always been a talent of mine. That I I always really enjoy. Um, it's something that I actually part of me likes that it's not it's not the thing I do for a living because mm-hmm. I can kind of protect it and keep it. Um, I don't know, just keep it fun without any sort of expectations that you got to put food on the table. You got to sing for your food or whatever. Right. It's just something I enjoy. I love it. I love the expression of it. I love how it feels. And and um, if I weren't an actor, I probably would have pursued a music career. Um, and it would have lasted maybe a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> if you're just joining us, we're speaking with actor James Marsden. His newest show from Amazon Freebie is called Jury Duty. More after break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Osea. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Their Golden Glow body set includes three bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM. 
This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. You know, one of your earlier big breaks was uh, on the X-Men franchise. I think there was like four movies you were in. Um, right. And you played Cyclops, like for people who don't know, is a mutant um, who can shoot lasers out of his eyes. And he has to wear these special visors all the time to keep the lasers from just like, you know, destroying everything. Like Ruby whenever- Ruby Quartz played it, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, there we go. Ruby Quartz played it. So um, this was probably a great gig to get, but I was wondering if it was a bummer for you to have to act all the time with these goggles on your head. Like, like your eyes are, I mean- are probably some of your biggest tools if you're an actor. Like, was was that mm. was that kind of annoying in some ways? <laughs> it was definitely. Uh, I mean, look, it was a gigantic movie. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it's hard for me to look back on that and have any complaints at all. <laughs> being involved <laughs> with that. Um, that said, as an actor, you're you know the character is kind of a stiff and uh, a bit of a boy scout, mm-hmm. and he's meant to be a foil to Hugh Jackman's more you know roguish. Right. Uh, you know, fly by the seat of his pants kind of um, wild card guy. And then you throw the goggles on top of it. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah. I don't have much dynamic range here to uh, explore. <laughs> yeah. Like, would you like, I need to flare my nostrils in the scene to I re- express. Right, like... I know, yeah, clench my jaw. <laughs> I remember when we were rehearsing a scene and, and I didn't have, because we, we were rehearsing and uh, I I didn't have my glasses on, you know, and I was... I was doing the scene, I think it was with Fomka and Hugh in the bedroom when he's like, you know, you're going to tell me to stay away from your girl and that whole thing. And, and mm-hmm. it was, it was weirdly wasn't working. Like there, we really, it was, it was a weird day because it was, we were all trying to figure out and Brian, the director was trying to figure out why it's not working and what's, what's the hitch and, you know, and, and we all, all of us felt like, oh God, we're getting fired today. This is it. <laughs> Every one of us. And I remember Hugh saying the same thing to me and Fomka saying the same thing. And just all of us were like, we suck, we suck. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember doing the scene. We came in the next day to rehearse it again, and I didn't have my glasses on. And Brian's like, "What are you doing right now? This is like absolutely perfect." I was like, "Well, I don't. You, you're looking me in the eye. <laughs> I'm I'm giving you something that I can't give you with the with the visor on." And he was like, "Oh, right, right, right." <laughs> <laughs> so and then you don't want to overcompensate by using your voice. I'm, you know, <laughs> like, um, but it was a little bit of a. You know, it was a speed bump, I guess. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, but again, I can't look back on that experience. I'm so grateful to be a part of it. And it just, you know, shot me out of a cannon at the time. Mm-hmm. I was, whatever, 26 years old. And and uh, everyone in the world knew who the X-Men were at that point. And yeah. um, fulfilling a childhood fantasy. And it put me on the map. It opened up a tremendous amount of opportunities for me. And then I thought, well, now I'm going to go and and hopefully find the roles to show everyone that I'm not just that guy. You know, I'm just wondering, um, I think it's objectively clear that you're a very attractive person. And I was wondering if you just like, in your life, did you ever have a realization of that? Like, and, and that that would mean that there would be sort of attention towards you, like maybe wanted attention or sometimes unwanted attention? Um. Yeah, I guess there be, there was a realization at some point. It's so funny, though, because I was not that guy growing up. I really mm-hmm. was not. I was goofy. I was, you know, I was the silly actor guy doing 
doing bits. I didn't know how to get a good haircut. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't care what I was wearing. I just, you know, would have my shirt on inside out and mismatching socks. And it just, you know, in Oklahoma is like the girls want the like jock who's the quarterback of the football team is six foot two corn fed boy. And I was like this 145 pound shrimp who just was like, I can do a good Mike Myers, you know, <laughs> It's not the sexiest thing in the world. I just never looked at myself that way Mm -hmm. Um, until I turned about like 17 and sort of started coming into myself. And and I started hearing it back from other people. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I remember this girlfriend of mine, Leslie, in high school, and she was like my my pal. Like we were buddies. And then when I got to senior year of high school, she was like, what happened to you? I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, (laughs) you're actually kind of hot now. (laughs) So it's like, wait, what? What does that even mean? Right. Um, And I wasn't the guy who was getting the girl in in high school, and maybe that's why I was attracted to those roles. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I did realize at some point that, you know, if you accept that as you know, something that's part of your nature and and it can be an absolute asset in this business, Mm -hmm. then embrace it. And don't lead with it. Um, Don't rely on it as a crutch. And just treat it like it's a bonus, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember this acting coach once. I think there was an acting coach who came through Oklahoma once. I took his class and he said, he looked at me and he goes, you don't need to be thinking just something like marquee good looks, you know, superstar. Mm -hmm. He's like, you need to be thinking Jim Carrey because Mm -hmm. you look the way you do, but you need to be something else on the inside. And I was like, yeah, actually, I relate to that f- way more. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, you could weaponize it a little bit in Hollywood. You can just be like, all right, hey, this is a good thing. It's going to snare me some good roles. <laughs> right. And then yeah. I'm going to I'm going to show that I'm there's, you know, the more than meets the eye with my performance or with my take on it. And um, I never wanted to be the guy who was just cast as the good looking dude in a letter jacket. Well, James Marston, it's been really great having you on. Thanks so much for being on Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. James Marston spoke with Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger. Marston stars in the new series Jury Duty, which is streaming on Amazon Freebie. After we take a short break, John Powers will review a new film by a director, John says, is unmatched at capturing how social forces twist people into knots. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, historians, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mass Mutual. 
According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short- or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. In the new Romanian film, RMN, a village in Transylvania is thrown into turmoil when the local bakery hires workers from Sri Lanka. The movie, which is now playing in theaters, was made by Christian Munju. Our critic at large, John Powers, thinks he's one of the best filmmakers anywhere. He says RMN cuts to the very heart of what's happening in the world right now. Back in 1999, if you'd asked me to guess which film cultures would be the most exciting in the next century, I would never have picked South Korea and Romania. And yet, here we are. South Korea has become not just a film, but a pop culture juggernaut. And while Romanian cinema is less known, it's produced a wave of filmmakers whose work dwarfs the movies coming out of, say, France or Sundance. Its leading light is Christian Munju, who highlighted Romania's claim to attention by winning the 2007 Palme d'Or at Cannes with his abortion drama Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days. Since then, he's made only three features, but they've shown Munju unmatched at capturing how social forces twist people into knots. He catches our precise historical moment in his new one, RMN, a piercing, enigmatic story that's set in bleak present-day Romania, but is profoundly relevant to what's happening almost everywhere. The main character is Matthias, played by Marin Grigore, who, as the action begins, flees his job at a German slaughterhouse after headbutting a co-worker who calls him a gypsy. He returns home to his struggling Romanian village in Transylvania. Though it's just before Christmas, his arrival doesn't exactly delight his estranged wife, Anna. She's busy fretting over their young son, Rudy, who's gone mute since being traumatized by something he saw in the woods. The surly Matthias worries that Anna's concern is turning Rudy into a sissy with no survival skills. The ones who show pity die first, he tells his terrified son. I want you to die last. Nor does Matthias' return please his ex-lover, Scylla, that's Judith Stata, who's moved on. She manages a regional baking company that, owing to a labor shortage, hires a couple of employees from Sri Lanka. Even though many local men work abroad, the community freaks out over having foreigners in their midst, especially Asian ones. To Scylla's horror, the villagers, including the local doctor and pastor, want them gone. Manju based the film on an actual 2020 event in Ditrao, Romania, where 1,800 villagers voted to expel three Sri Lankans who worked at their local bakery. But while the story is true, RMN is no docudrama or slab of dreary realism. Shot in dynamic widescreen images suffused with wintry blues and grays, it offers a superbly choreographed vision of this village's life, from its holiday parade with men wearing bear costumes to its jingoist Facebook groups. Although he's concerned with large sociopolitical issues, Munju treats his characters as vivid individuals, bursting with human complexity. None more mysteriously so than Matthias, a lost soul torn between joining his xenophobic neighbors and trying to win Scylla's love. Fighting the currents of history, he embodies a once-admired vision of manhood, strong, patriarchal, fraught with violence, that feels out of date.
His harshness runs counter to the sympathetic Scylla's desire to be part of the prosperous European Union and to embrace the heightened romantic emotions you find in Wong Kar Wai's film, In the Mood for Love, whose theme song she practices on her cello. Munju's themes all come together in an astonishing 17-minute town hall meeting that's done in a single shot and features more than 25 speakers. In it, he encapsulates the fear and anger of a community that voices opinions ranging from downright nutty bigotries to reasonable complaints about the EU. We grasp that the scapegoating of the Sri Lankan workers isn't merely racism, but also a reaction to deep cultural trauma. Most of the villagers feel that their familiar way of life is being replaced by a Western model that disdains the comforting old certainties about race, gender, and national pride and offers in its place a dehumanized, hyper-capitalist society in which a privileged handful winds up driving Mercedes, while the rest must settle for low-paying jobs. Such nativist populism is, of course, volatile material these days. Yet what makes Munju's work so good is that he doesn't tell us what to think. He's showing us the world, not preaching about it. Indeed, the letters that compose the title RMN refers to an imaging process akin to the MRI. That is, Munju is offering an anatomical scan of the Romanian body politic. But not only the Romanian one. In its furious disputes over immigration, vanishing jobs, nationalism, and enlightenment values, RMN depicts a reality that, like it or not, hits very close to home. Watching that overwrought town hall meeting, I can imagine one like that happening almost anywhere, in France, Britain, Sweden, Canada, or even my home state of Iowa. John Powers reviewed the new film RMN, which is now playing in theaters. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about growing up with a mother, Viva, who was one of Andy Warhol's superstars. My guest will be Alexandra O'Dare. Her new memoir describes growing up in the Chelsea Hotel in a world of underground artists living outside the boundaries of what most people would consider a, quote, normal childhood. Odir is a yoga teacher, writer, and actress. Her younger sister, Gabby Hoffman, is an actress, too. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our engineer today is Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Boldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberto Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Don't get caught without emergency medical coverage on an international trip. Learn how Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your trip from the unexpected at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear... 
It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.